I'm going to preach to you guys uh, Psalm 84, a, a sermon and psalm I preached to Windsor Community Church uh, two weeks ago. So um, just trust me that the Lord providentially arranged a, a pause in our Hebrew study, even though we had just started it last week, and we're going to get back briefly into the Psalms. So with that said, would you please stand, and I'm going to call my good friend Joe Crawford. He and his wife are in town from Michigan. They used to be at this church, and Joe used to be a deacon here. And Joe is going to read for us Psalm 84. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints. For the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at the altar, O Lord of hosts. My King, my God, blessed are those who dwell in the house ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Vaca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers in with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O Lord Jacob, O God Jacob. Behold, our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, Selah. For a day in the courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us in Christ, for drawing near to us. We praise you for, for who you are, Lord. You are great, and you're greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. We worship you today, Lord, as the supreme satisfaction of our hearts and souls. Lord, you have given us a holy appetite for you by your Spirit in us. And you've satisfied us, and yet we long for more, Lord. May it never be enough for all of eternity, Lord. May we get more and more of you and learn more and more how to walk by faith and in satisfaction for who you are, Lord, and for what you've done. I praise you in the midst of this people. Pray, Lord, that you would increase and I would decrease and you would use me, your servant, to speak your word truly and rightly. I come, Lord, before you and before your people in weakness and trembling, my strength in you and our strength in you. Cause us to see you more truly and worship you more fully this morning. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You guys can be seated. So I've been a part of this church body for almost three years, and uh, I want to share my story, and I wrestled with that. I actually asked Daniel, my friend, if he thought that was an okay idea, because I know some of you have heard my story, um, but I think it's really pertinent to this psalm. So if you've heard it, you're going to hear it again. We for, we're forgetful people, right? I hope you don't uh, you throw me a bone. I'm going to talk briefly about myself, hopefully, and mostly about God's Word. And there are a lot of new faces here at the crossing. Uh, so I'm going to share a little bit about myself, and I think you'll see how it relates to the psalm this morning. I grew up with Christian parents. 
in a Christian home. Therefore, I thought I was a Christian like most Christian kids. I didn't get saved until I was 26 years old in 2013, long after college. My parents did a great job. I loved them. I had a great upbringing. had an older brother. Um, kind of a happy childhood. And I say that because an underlying theme of my life, starting in about second and third grade, was the belief that I was stupid. I started really struggling in school that young. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't concentrate. And so, and I start getting bad grades. And who, you know, who's getting bad grades in second and third grade? Some people, and that's okay. And I was one of them. Spelling homework was hard, and I wanted to play. And I was stupid, so why do homework? So starting in middle school, I start, I had believed this lie had become such a part of my life. Chad, you are stupid. And where do kids spend most of the day? In school. Nine to five or nine to three every day. You're stupid. You're so stupid, you're worthless. And so you should kill yourself. And so starting from middle school, junior high, all the way through after college, I struggled with suicidal thoughts. By God's grace, I don't anymore. But to be honest with you guys, and I've said this before, sometimes I still struggle believing I'm stupid. And so I say that to give you the backdrop of this struggle. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm an extroverted extrovert. I had friends. But this underlying thing is, dude, you're stupid and worthless. You should kill yourself. And I finally discovered something that gave me purpose and passion. In eighth grade, uh, I got, my arm got twisted to come out for the sport of track and field. Before I share more, I've said this before, but I get nervous about sharing my story because I don't want to come off as an arrogant guy. And I've just pushed into, um, we can share our stories for God's glory. And the Lord gave me a lot of success in track and field. And I'm not going to tell you that because I want you, to, you guys to think I'm cool. I want to tell you that because I want to tell you that it didn't satisfy me. The Lord gave me lots of success in ways that the world says should satisfy me, and it didn't. So there's my caveat. So in eighth grade, the, the basketball, I'm on the basketball court, and the track coach says, please come run track. He saw me run around the court. And I said, okay, I'll, I guess. I mean, I don't really, I mean, running in circles, you can't get a lot of girls that way, but I'll try it. And I was a sprinter, so I ran the 100, the 200, and I was really good in the 400. If you don't know what the 400 is, that's one lap around the track. I won every race they put me in. 100, 200, 400, and I was really good at the 400. I set the district record that I, I think I still have in the Pooter School District. So all that to say, thanks. I'm just saying that to say, so does it make sense that that's where my purpose and my passion and my value and my worth were? The minute I found track and field, I said, this is what my life's all about. I have, for the first time in my life, I have purpose, I have passion, I have value, I have worth. Therefore, I want to be an Olympic gold medalist, and I want to be a professional track and field athlete. That is why I'm on earth. That is what I'm seeking satisfaction in. So my whole life, me seeking satisfaction in this sport. So let me fast forward us to senior year of high school. I'm wrestling with, does my hatred for school and my fear of school and my belief that I'm stupid and worthless outweigh my love for track? Basically, should I keep running track in college? Well, I believe God had a providential plan for my life, and my senior year in the 400 meters in the state championship, I ran the ninth fastest time in the United States of America for high school 400 runners, high school boys. And then I start getting phone calls left and right, please come run track for us, we'll pretty much pay for all of your school. And I'm like, okay, you know, if school is going to get paid for, I'll go run track for four more years, because I want to be an Olympian, and I want to be a gold medalist, and I want to be a professional. So I get a... I go to University of Oregon, and I just won't share any details there. Suffice it to say, Chad Barlow is living for his own kingdom. And I'm seeking satisfaction in my performance in track and field, which those of you who have devoted your lives to your performance in whatever it is, a sport or your job or your marriage or relationships, it's a volatile existence. If I performed well, I'm on cloud nine. I'm the man. 
if I perform bad, I'm the worst. All I am is stupid and worthless, and I can't even run a good 400, and that happened many weekends. But I had a good college career. I'm thankful. I had a good team. We won the conference championship every single year I was in college. I have these huge like nfl size rings every time we won a conference championship. We won a couple national championships on relays and won national championship as a team. And I say that not to be arrogant, but to tell you guys, the morning after I had won a national championship, the high was over. I was like, is this it? The world has been telling me if I get to this place, a national champion, D1, that I'm going to be happy. And it only lasts 12 hours? This is some joke. This isn't fair. So senior year of college comes around, and I don't go pro. I don't run fast enough to make any Olympics. Definitely not get a million-dollar signing bonus from Nike. And I get really depressed. Really depressed. I call it the Great Depression of my life. And I'm thankful for it because it's when the Lord drew me to himself. So I moved from Oregon back to Colorado. I, I moved to Grand Junction where a friend was finishing up his baseball career. And I'm in such pain, I start going to church for the first time in my life because I wanted to. Now, I went with mom and dad my whole life because I was supposed to. That's what we did. I went a few times in college to check off the box, to, you know, do, ask for forgiveness for what I'd done. But after college, I'm in such pain. I'm like, Lord, if you're real, you've got to reveal yourself to me. Otherwise, I'm going to blow my brains out. So I start reading the Bible from beginning to end. I realize I grew up in the church and I've never read from Genesis to Revelation. I start doing that. I'm going to church and one Sunday the pastor, his sermon is all about the difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, a true Christian and a fake Christian. And I'm cut to the heart because as he's describing a fake Christian, a nominal Christian, those of us who give Jesus lip service but don't love him and don't obey him, he was describing me and I'm sitting in there crying saying, holy cow, I haven't been a Christian my whole life and I thought I was. He didn't say anything about worship. He did, the pastor didn't. He didn't say anything about purpose or passion or value or worth. And in that moment, I believe I was regenerated. I was born again. And you guys, my life changed. It's never been the same. I found a superior satisfaction in God that has only grown more and more. I'm more satisfied in Him and I want to be more satisfied in Him. And I share my story to say, I think everyone can relate. Whatever you had before, you seek... I saw satisfaction in something. We all do. And the reality is only God can satisfy us. Only He can. We're made for Him and by Him. We have a hole in our hearts. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. What I want you guys to hear this morning is this. Since God is the supreme satisfaction of the human soul, Desiring and delighting in Him should be both the motivation and the goal of our lives. We should always be growing in our satisfaction in the Lord, our desire for Him, our acknowledgement that He is the only thing that's going to fill my heart. Psalm 84 is a psalm. It's a praise and a prayer of someone who says this. Only God satisfies. I want to be with God. I don't want anything else but being with God. If all I have is God, then I have everything I need. It's an amazing psalm. It's one of my favorites. It's written by the sons of Korah, which in 1 Chronicles 26, these guys were assigned to be the gatekeepers of the temple. That, that's going to help us understand this psalm. One commentator says potentially that part of their job, their task of being gatekeepers was also to be the janitors of the temple. They're in the temple a lot, cleaning it up, making sure it looks good. I've divided the psalm for this morning into four sections. Passion, 
pilgrimage, prayer, and praise. We see this in the psalm. The psalmist is convinced that only God will satisfy him, so he overflows in passion. He considers a pilgrimage, and he's stirred to prayer and to praise. So let's look at verse 1 together. He starts by saying, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. This word lovely could be translated beloved. He longs for it. He loves it. Think about the way the Father spoke of Jesus at His baptism. This is My beloved Son. There is such love to be with God. It's lovely. But why does He say that? Because the temple was amazing. It was aesthetically pleasing. It was majestic. Maybe it was. But what does He say? How lovely is Your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. He wants to be there because it's the Lord's place. The Lord of hosts. That could be translated the Lord of angel armies, the Lord of heaven's armies, the Creator of everything. Everybody and everything. He is the Sovereign. In verse 2, He says, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. He is longing to be with God. You hear His passion. It's almost as if He's saying, Lord, if I don't get You, or the thought if I don't get You very soon, I'm going to faint And at the thought of getting you, and when I do get you, my heart and flesh will sing for joy to you, the living God. Charles Spurgeon says this about these verses. Some people need to be whipped to church. While here is the psalmist crying for it, he needed no clatter of bells from the bell tower to bring him in. He carried his bell in his own bosom. Holy appetite is a better call to worship than a full chime. Is that amazing? Do you hear the passion? I ask you guys right now, are you here, the gathering of God's people to worship God because you have a holy appetite to be with Him and to worship Him? Or are you here checking off a box? Or because mom and dad are making you be here to, to ask for forgiveness of your sins that you did this week? Or is the primary reason because you want God? Next, he turns. His passion overflows even to the birds. In verse 3, he says, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. One commentator said that, says that uh, sparrow might be a, a, a biblical term that describes something that's worthless. You think of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Jesus says, look at the birds in general. God cares for them. Does He not care for you? But in Matthew 10.29, Jesus says this, are not two sparrows sold for one penny, insinuating their worthlessness, and yet God takes care of them. Fear not, therefore, in verse 31, for you are of more value than many sparrows. If God takes care of the sparrows, how much more does He take care of us? who are not worthless in His sight, who are precious, His children in His sight. This God who takes care of the sparrows, we can say like the psalmist, my King and my God at the end of verse 3. Verse 4, he says, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. He's probably considering the birds and himself, a son of Korah, a gatekeeper, a janitor. Happy are the birds and the janitors of the temple who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. 
Here's how the gospel applies to us. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus ended the sacrificial temple system. We don't have to go to a place to seek the presence of God anymore. When we believed the Gospel and found a superior satisfaction in God, it's evidence that we had received the Holy Spirit. And now we are the place where heaven and earth meet and we can continually praise Him. Like the sons of Korah and like the birds who found their homes in the temple. Isn't that amazing? We can continually praise God. Do you know how to praise God? When you brush your teeth? When you're changing a poopy diaper? in between tasks at work, where you live, work, and play. We use that a lot here at The Crossing to talk about our evangelism, the way we leave a legacy. I'm going to steal that. Have you learned how to worship God where you live, work, and play? Through my friendship with Pastor Daniel and our shared passion of playing hockey, I have learned to worship God through hockey. I'm not worshiping hockey. I'm worshiping God through the gift of hockey a game we both love where we get to use our arms and our legs and our brains and teamwork and we get to build relationships with guys who we love that don't know the Lord. It's been amazing to learn to worship. I encourage that to you guys. You are a temple. You can worship God all the time. So I titled that first section, verses 1-4, through four, Passion, but it's not as if His passion fades. He's passionate throughout this whole thing. But He does turn His attention a little bit to consider the pilgrimage that the Jews would take various times throughout the year for their feasts to make sacrifices, especially on the Day of Atonement and stuff. So let's consider the pilgrimage together. Look at verse 5. He says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you. A Christian is one whose strength is in God. Who knows that they cannot make it through life without the strength of God. There are, there's some statements out there from those who don't believe in God, and maybe we could argue even those who hate God, who say Christianity is just for the weak. Christianity is just a crutch for the weak-minded. It's a, it's a defeater belief. And I just want to one-up them and say, my faith and your faith and our strength in God is not a crutch. We don't occasionally lean on the living God for moments to help us walk. It is a life support system. So good job. You won the argument. I can't make it through a day without the strength of God, and neither can you. My marriage would not be what it is apart from the strength of God. My parenting, which has a long way to go and grow, would not be what it is apart from the strength of God. When your kids are on their 25th fight by 9.30 a.m., you are begging God for His strength to get through the day. Because you don't want to go to jail. You need His strength. We all know that. The reality is, as Christians, when we're strong, we're strong as long as we're strong in the Lord. And when we're weak, we're strong. You guys know the famous New Testament passage on this. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. Paul is begging God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take away some thorn in his flesh that makes him feel weak. Please remove this thing. I feel weak all the time because of this thorn in the flesh. And what does the Lord Jesus say to him? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Praise God. When we are weak, then we're strong. It's a good place to be, you guys, to feel weak. And say, God, I need You. I can't make it. My strength has to be in You. And when our strength is in God, look at the second half of verse 5, we have highways in our hearts that lead to Zion. I love this verse. Zion just means the presence of God. Sometimes contextually it means Jerusalem. Sometimes it means the temple. At least it means the presence of God. The, the center of the people of God where His presence was, Zion. And when our strength is in Him, like I said, our hearts are highways to Zion. I want people to say that about me. And Christians, you want people to say that about you. Personally and congregationally. Wouldn't it be an amazing compliment to hear, man, every time I'm around you, you just seem so Godward and God-centered and God-focused. And when I saw you two months ago, today you seem closer along this highway to this God that you love and worship. What a compliment that would be from a Christian and from a non-believer. What about congregationally? We together. Our heart is a highway that leads to Zion. You know how we say that at the crossing? Making disciples of Jesus Christ from the glory of God, for the glory of God, and the joy of His people. And we do that through love, live, and legacy, which I explained at the beginning. If we together want our hearts to continue to be a highway to Zion, we must keep the main thing the main thing. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. And inviting people into this supreme satisfaction. Come to Jesus. Come to the living waters, the bread of life. Everything you're trying isn't going to satisfy you. Come with us. Love Him. We'll live together. We'll leave a legacy. You guys, if we lose sight of this, if we start appropriating other worldviews, let's start, let's start viewing the world as just two categories, oppressor and oppressed, and everyone's racist, especially in here. And that's going to help us get the Gospel out. It's not. We have to keep viewing the world the way God wants us to view the world. Sinners and saved and unsaved. And people need a Savior who will satisfy them. This church will remain healthy and strong if we keep running to that together. And in 50 years, if we look back and it's dead, it's because we allowed other worldviews into this church. May we not do that. May God give us the strength to not do that. It's going to be hard though. It's going to be hard. This pilgrimage will be hard. Look at verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain cover, also covers it with pools. Valley of Baca can be translated valley of weeping. Some commentators and archaeologists believe this is a literal place, and it may be a, a dry and arid place full of balsam trees that was really a difficult part of the journey to get to Jerusalem. I believe it's more used symbolically, like the val valley all over the Bible, to refer to the difficult paths we travel in life. Valleys of weeping, depression, despair, desperate circumstances. But look back at this word as they go through the valley of weeping. God will bring us through every valley of weeping. Some of you may be in one right now. God will bring you through. And not only that, I think I talked about it last time I preached in Psalm 6. The valleys are good for us, you guys. 
God strengthens, sustains, sanctifies us through the valleys of weeping. He gets our hands off the world. Oops, I was grabbing onto that, Lord. My bad. Back onto You. He brings comfort. He brings blessing. Not just to us, but to other people. We can comfort other people with the comfort that He comforted us with. 2 Corinthians 1, I think. That is an amazing truth. And that's what it means. They make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Blessing comes through the valleys. Sanctification. should remind you of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. For God's children. For those who love Him and have been called. So I ask you guys, why do, why do we ask to be removed from the valleys of weeping? I said this last time. God's trying to talk to me maybe and you guys. When we're in a valley of weeping, I'm the first to admit, I, don't, I want to be happy all the time. So do you guys. And so when we're in this valley, we say, Lord, get me out. Lord, get me out. Lord, get me out. Instead of first, it's okay to pray that, but instead of first, Lord, give me grace. What are you teaching me? What, what am I holding on to so tightly that's caused me to be so unsatisfied? Oops. Back on to God. It is a good thing to be in the, the school of hard knocks. The school of Christ. Suffering makes us more like Christ. So praise His name. And because of verse 6, you can say verse 7, they go, these on the pilgrimage, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. When we're weak, we're strong. And when we're strong, we're strong. All of our life is going from strength to strength. And we will appear before God in Zion. We will see Him someday with our eyes. We will have glorified eyes that when they see Him, they won't explode if we saw Him right now with these sinful and fallen eyes. You think that tropical storm you saw in Florida was amazing? I think that when I saw the, the king of the jungle, the lion at the Houston Zoo, right there on the other side of the glass was amazing. We are going to see the God of the universe someday. The Puritans called it, I think, the beatific vision. I'm getting goosebumps right now at the thought of seeing the living God who loves me and gave His Son for me. I can't wait. My heart is crying for that. And if you're a Christian, your heart is crying for that. And the reason we can be excited about that is because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to appear before Him this holy, holy, holy God that should rightly explode us and send us to an eternity in hell is going to say, welcome. You're in My Son. Come. Love, grace, acceptance. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. I can't wait. And you can't either if you're a Christian. We will appear before Him. He will see us through. We're not traveling to a temple. We're traveling to the heavenly city whose builder and designer is God. And we will arrive there. He will see us through. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We'll arrive at our destination. We will feast in the house of Zion. We won't weep anymore. We long for that day. And this pilgrimage, it's joyful and it's tough and it's going to cause us to pray and to praise. 
Let's look at his prayer together. These are, this is short, just two verses. Verses 8 and 9. He says this, <clears throat> O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This is what he says. He says, All-powerful Creator, hear me. Draw near. What does it mean to hear? Especially for a guy like me who's half deaf in his left ear. To hear you guys, I have to draw near. I have to get closer. That's what the son of Korah is asking. Come close, Lord. Hear me. You're the all-powerful Creator. And when he says God of Jacob, he's saying you're the covenant-keeping God. And you are our shield. I need you. I need protection. I want to draw near to you because I find protection in your presence. When we consider these verses, the whole book of Psalms, the reality of prayer, that's mostly what prayer is, you guys. It's okay to ask God for His gifts and to get us out of valleys, but the primary purpose of prayer is God. I want You, God. I want You. Help me see what I'm wanting more than You. Draw near. Give me ear. Give me protection. Be with me, Lord. I am always so convicted at my prayer life. And probably you guys are too. Does, does your desire to be intimate with God show in your prayer life? You're praying all throughout the day. Do you spend time in the morning or the evening praying just seeking intimacy with God? We can all grow in this. That's why Tyler Colt and I started Prayer Partners. Because we said, we're really bad at prayer. Let's try to grow together and offer this to the church. Prayer is about being near to God. It's about seeking intimacy with Him. It will preserve and persevere our satisfaction in the Lord. And not only prayer, but praise. Let's look at verses 10-12 through 12 together. In verse 10, he says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Do you guys believe that? Do you live it? God is the supreme satisfaction of the human soul. One little itty bitty moment with Him is better than a hundred gold medals and millions of dollars from Nike. Can you say that? Do you want Him more than you want anything else? Just a little moment with Him. The second half of that verse, he says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think this means two things. I think he's continuing his theme. He would rather be on the threshold of the presence of God than anywhere else, than a sovereign in a tent of wickedness. But he's also referring to his task. His lowly, air quotes, lowly task of being a doorkeeper and a janitor. There's no such thing as a small role in the kingdom of God, you guys. And if there is, wouldn't you rather be a doorkeeper in His kingdom than a sovereign in a tent? So many people out there think, oh, I don't really have many gifts. I don't know what my gifts are. You have a gift. You have a way to serve the church and the church needs your gifts even if you think it's small. I got all emo last time I preached this because my wife says that a lot. I don't know what my gifts are. And she's an amazing host and I think she has the gift of hospitality. And we host our life group. 
And she makes sure the house is clean and she prepares good food. And that's a big deal. People feel loved when they're welcomed into a home and fed. You guys, our, our children's ministry needs help. There are a lot of ways we can serve this church. Communion team needs help. Oh, these are small tasks. No, they're not. They're important. Watching the kids and teaching the kids is not glorified babysitting. It's discipleship. I have little kids. I can tell them God loves you and I can show them God loves them by the way that I treat them. You can give your life to making disciples of the kids serving this church. I encourage you guys to find a way to serve the church. If you're not in a life group, join a life group. Join a life group. Not because it's a rule. Because it's God's design for you to live in gospel community and to serve other people with your gifts. To love other people. To learn to lay down yourself for other people and to allow other people to do that for you. Wouldn't you rather be a doorkeeper at Life Group than the CEO of Apple? I would. The psalmist, the sons of Korah, he, he is begging for the Lord in and of himself, but he can't help but offer some attributes of God in verse 11. He says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. By sun and shield, I believe he means he's light. He's life. He's protection. God doesn't offer meager offerings of himself. He's not this lowly God who needed us to bring him more glory because he was insufficient in his glory. He's amazing. He has so many attributes that we should study for the rest of our lives and worship him for. The psalmist is overflowing. God, You are light, life, and protection, and You bestow favor and honor. This is amazing because we can understand this so much more in light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Certainly the son of Korah believed this in the people of Israel. God did bestow favor and honor on them. But we live in A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We look back on the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and we say, that's how God bestows favor favor and honor. We can't get more favor and honor from anywhere else in the world but from the living God who gave His Son for us even though we were sinners to die in our place on the cross. God's wrath poured on Him. For our sins, He died. Three days later, rose again. Ascended to the Father. Has sent the Holy Spirit to give us a superior satisfaction and to adopt us as children of God. Why? I'm preaching to myself, why do I struggle so much with people pleasing? Even in this moment, I'm like, oh man, I hope they like this sermon. When I have favor and honor from the God of the universe. Come on, people pleasers. I know some of you are out there. We have favor and honor from the God of the universe. We don't need to seek it anywhere else. Second half of that verse, he says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Obviously, this means that God is going to give us the Lamborghini, of course, and the mansion, and all the things that we want in this life. No. You guys know that. It doesn't mean that. I won't get on my prosperity gospel soapbox. I'll leave it there. What it means is God is going to give us everything we need to persevere, to make it to Zion, to His presence. The Lamborghini's not that good for us. The mansion might not be that good for us. The better golf swing might not be that good for us. Getting out of the valley of weeping 
might not be what's good for us, but He will give us everything we need to see Him in Zion, to see His presence. Romans 8.32, my favorite verse, my life verse. God, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? All things that we need to persevere. He'll see us through. We can stand on that promise. We can praise Him for that promise. Finally, He says in verse 12, O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Happy is the one who trusts in God through the valleys of weeping and the mountaintops of joy. Happy is the person who has found their supreme satisfaction in God. So I ask you guys a few questions. Do you really believe that only God can truly satisfy the longings of your soul? Do you really believe that? And do you live it? Christians in here, do you need to repent of an idolatrous desire that has been placed above God? The reality is this isn't a one-time thing. When I got saved, when I was born again, it wasn't as if I was never going to struggle finding my satisfaction in other things besides God. You guys have heard my story. I've beaten the dead horse. I'm going to beat it again. Audrey and I still live with my parents. We're still wanting a home. Remember three years ago when I preached the first sermon I talked about that? We're still living with my parents. And I love them. You guys hear me say that every time they're here. We love it. But I'm just telling you guys, that's the experience that Audrey and I are in. We want a house. And on days we end upset, it's because we've sought satisfaction in a home and not in the Lord. I'm still longing for vocational ministry. So far, we don't know what's next. And I find on days that I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I'm sad and my head's on the pillow, it's because I'm seeking satisfaction in vocational ministry, not the God of the universe. Not many of you in here are hoping for the Ferrari and the huge mansion and the boat and the better golf swing. You're hoping for good things. There are people in here who are wanting another kid. There are probably young families who are hoping for another home or a bigger home. Your family's growing. You're hoping for a better relationship with your son-in-law or daughter-in-law. But when your hands get like this, you will find that you're not satisfied and realize, oh yeah, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to be satisfied in You. You're the only thing that's going to satisfy me. And if You give me the kid, if You give me the better relationship with the in-laws, praise Your name. And if You don't, praise Your name. If I have You, God, I have everything. If I have You, God, and I lose everything, I still have everything. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I never assume that everyone in here is a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I'm calling you to believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and believe Jesus. Come to Him as a supreme satisfaction. I don't say this because I think if you place your faith in Jesus right now, I'm going to get a bigger mansion in heaven. I say it because I believe it. And I love you. And you're not. are you really satisfied in the thing that you're trying to fill your heart with if it's not God? Just ask yourself that honestly. Because I don't think you are. And I believe when you put your faith in Jesus, repent of your sins, He will give you a satisfaction. And it's appetizers. It's great, and it's appetizers compared to what we're going to get when we see Him. Do you guys long for and faint for God? Do you want to be here Sunday mornings? Do you have a quiet time built into your day? Do you want that time? Do you hate when you miss that time? 
Is it a harder day when you don't spend time with the Lord in the Word and in prayer alone? It's harder for me. Are you helping other people grow in this? This kind of delight and passion can't stay private. And dang it, the culture has won a big war against us. It's fine to be Christians. Just keep it to yourself. You can be anything else. You can be a guy who says he's a girl and that's great. Just don't be a Christian in the public square. Baloney! This kind of joy and delight can't stay in this sanctuary. We have to go out with it. We have to risk the awkwardness and the fear. Me and Daniel and Colt last week went to CSU campus and evangelized. First time in my life I've ever cold turkey evangelized. It was terrifying. But my satisfaction and delight in the Lord causes me to move out and risk getting denied like 30 times. It's worth it. We love people and we love this God. Don't let the culture win this war anymore. No more. We do it with the pizza restaurant. We do it with the sushi restaurant. We do it with the new Avengers movie. Have you seen it? It's great. Let me talk to you about it. And we're quiet about the God of the universe who's forgiven our sins, who's given us the superior satisfaction. No more. Just join me. No more. I'll lose friendships. I will lose friendships to tell people about this God who I love. I want to end with this. I want to give you guys a gospel motivation to live this out because I'm always afraid, not always, but this time, that I've given you a law. Here's a law. If you're not satisfied in God, you need to question your salvation. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're saved when you've done that. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It's going to continue to give you the ability to find a superior satisfaction in the Lord. I haven't given you a law. You're saved by Christ. Worship Him. Praise Him. Find ways to give your life to growing and learning how to be satisfied in Him. Every moment of every day because of the Gospel. Because He has taken us out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, we seek our satisfaction in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We praise You. You have satisfied us, Lord. We are satisfied in You. Thank You for the ways that You've saved the people in this room. You've drawn us to Yourself. You're a fountain of living water. You're the bread of life. Lord, we acknowledge the ways that we, we've sought satisfaction in other things, in homes and children and relationships and jobs. We repent, Lord. We turn back to You. We love You. We praise You. Thank You for this time with these saints this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.